welcome to episode 33 of Rural Matters, the leading podcast on rural education, health, and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman, and we are so excited to have you tune in to a new year and a whole new schedule of great guests and informative conversations. Now, for those of you who don't know, when I'm not working on the show, you can find me working with rural health organizations and speaking about rural health, patient and community stakeholder engagement, rural development, and sustainability across the country. As a reminder, you can find Rural Matters on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we encourage you to subscribe and receive new episodes automatically. And we always welcome your feedback. So if you've got ideas for an upcoming podcast, a question about an episode, or if you just want to chat, please do send us an email at rollmatterspodcast at gmail.com. And also, we really hope that you'll follow and engage with us on Twitter at Rural Matters Pod or me, MRB Impact. Now, I'd like to introduce today's guest, someone whose profession is very near and dear to my heart. Wade Owlett is the National Rural Education Association's 2018 Rural Teacher of the Year, among many other accomplishments, which you'll also hear about today. Wade grew up on a dairy farm outside of Wellsboro, Pennsylvania. He graduated from Lock Haven University with a degree in journalism and from Mansfield University with a master's in education. He has been teaching at Clarkwood Elementary School in Northern Tioga School District in Elkland, Pennsylvania for 13 years. And his primary focus has been teaching English and language skills at various levels. He also teaches historical thinking through social studies, one of my all-time favorite subjects, and also STEM in science. So Wade, as I said, is named the Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools Rural Educator of the Year, and he is a finalist for Pennsylvania's National Network of State Teachers of the Year for 2019. Now, before we have Wade join us, I just want to give you a little bit of quote uh, from what he shared with our producers. He says, with all of their successes and failures, my greatest contributions and accomplishments are my students. He believes that sharing and collaborating with colleagues is vital. He also says that having a team that supports you, challenges you, and helps you maintain professionalism is invaluable. What excites me most about this conversation truly is that Wade is not going to talk about his many impressive accomplishments, but rather he has put together a really fascinating discussion about the story of rural students in America today. And I I really think it's worth discussing because they truly are our future. So Wade, with all of that, Thank you, congratulations, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. It's good to be here. So let's just talk a little bit about the awards quickly at first. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your feeling about being the recipient and what that means to you and, you know, just on the greater landscape of being a teacher. That must feel really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was so exciting. I, um, yeah, I, I, it came as a surprise a little bit. Um, I I worked at the application last summer and um, it kind of just got kept rolling and it was it was really really honoring and I I I just I just couldn't be more happy about it. I was able to go to the the conference in Colorado and speak there and that was that was a really great experience to just be surrounded by so many people who um, love rural America. I I think that sometimes we get into this trap of of kind of defending rural America. Mm-hmm. And it was so nice to be in a community of people who just were all on the same page and we all just love rural America. So yeah, I, I've, I'm, I'm so excited about it. 
I feel the same way. I work um, on the national um, campaign every year for National Rural Health Day, and our we use the power of rural. And I agree with you. There's a lot of misperception and a lack of information, a lack of, uh, of um, education on what uh, rural is like. And I think in particular on the subject of education, there's probably a lot that people don't know and a lot of the similarities and challenges. So let's talk about that. You grew up on a dairy farm. You attended, I'm assuming, rural schools. Is that what struck you as your passion that was the match, um, that strike that inspired you to go into education and stay with your rural roots? Yeah, I think I think that was uh, largely it. So I grew up on a on a dairy farm, and uh, when I went to college, I was a first generation college um, student in in my in my family. So um, I went to Lock Haven and I studied journalism. And um, through those studies, I was able to um, do a study abroad experience in rural Australia. Wow. And, that was a really great experience and kind of opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, rural is more than just American rural. It's kind of this community of people all over the world. And mm-hmm. so when I came back from that experience and kind of, I don't know, reevaluated where I was and where I was going and what my next step would be um, with journalism, as you probably know, there's a lot of jobs in, in urban areas. But uh, as I kind of looked into that, it wasn't really fitting for me. So I went back to school and studied um, uh, education at Mansfield University and uh, really quickly uh, got a job. I think because of my journalism background too, I started teaching writing Mm -hmm. and uh, it just kind of really, everything fell into place and led me right back to the community that I grew up in, which is really kind of an odd thing. Um, But it, it's been really rewarding. Well, it's a dream come true for communities like yours. I mean, we take a look at the healthcare workforce. And I, what I really want to talk to you about today, I, I looked up some statistics, okay? So there's some varying um, statistics out there about how many people truly live in rural, anywhere from 50 to 60 million people. But about 13.4 million children under the age of 18 are living in rural communities. And What's striking to me in the year 2019, of course, is that about 19% of those children are living at at below poverty level. Um, Yeah. And so I know, so today we're going to talk a lot about the story of rural students in America. And there's so many facets of this. So let's talk first about that. Let's talk about rural education and poverty. I know you've got a, a lot of good information to share and can you talk a little bit about the challenges for educating students who are living that life? Yeah, I think especially when we look at rural America, poverty is a huge, huge problem and maybe maybe the biggest problem because mm-hmm. it's so connected to everything else. Um, so when I, when I think of poverty at my district, um, I, I work in a district that's right around 60% free and reduced lunch, and that's actually pretty good for the area. Um, so poverty is in our face all the time. And I think what we forget sometimes, even as teachers, is how much poverty affects everything else. So um, so when I look at poverty, it's so connected to the achievement gap and uh, low educational achievement or attainment. And even if you look at like teacher recruitment and retention, um, 
when when teachers are dealing with poverty, especially generational poverty, um, we don't often know how to handle that. And uh, one thing I think my district especially is is really starting to recognize is that poverty is really traumatic. So when we look at poverty and we think about poverty, it's not just a a, a system that's flawed and that we're we're trying to fix, but it's also something that's trauma that that children are coming with and it's affecting so many other things in their life, like nutrition and healthcare and childcare and and even the opioid crisis. So yeah, I think poverty is one of those things, those bumps in the road, I like to call it, that that re- we sometimes really get caught up on and should get caught up on. Absolutely, because I think about, um, in contrast, the students who, and again, I was sharing earlier with you that my daughter was a teacher in inner city charter school, very underserved children, and she would agree with you a thousand times that poverty was the the biggest roadblock that she faced. And so I was. I went to the National Rural Education Association website, and they, as you probably know, have blogs. And one of the things that I read that I wrote down, I wanted to mention to you, was this quote: "The future of work won't be about college degrees; it will be about job skills." So, as an educator serving these rural students, where we know poverty is a significant um, challenge, what are your thoughts on this, and how does it affect your approach to teaching? So, what can you share with other teachers out there listening to this? podcast about how you over how, how you help these students and their families overcome um, the the barriers to education considering the state of poverty they're in yeah i i um i'm a really big fan of uh, Jamie Mead she spoke at the national convention and she has this theory called a hope theory and i love it because basically the the theory is is talking about our states that, um, that if we can teach children or give children hope, if they can borrow our hope, then they can be successful. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes sometimes it's easy to forget that we need to make sure that we're building hope around us so that we have it to lend to students. And I think that as far as um, the way that I teach and kind of my my overall attitude uh, about teaching is is more of a facilitator anyway. So I I'm I don't often like see myself as in that traditional role of teaching. Um, we we teach in a customized program here, so I don't even have a, a same grade level uh, group of kids. It's a very mixed grade level, mm-hmm. um, and and so my job is to kind of guide those students and be an example and give hope to them. Um, in, in a lot of different areas, not just education, but I think going back to poverty and addressing that trauma uh, that goes along with poverty, um, the best way to do that is to, to give them hope and, and be an example and, and make sure that you have that hope that they can borrow from you when they are feeling very hopeless. So what are some of the, how do you borrow hope to them? What are some of the things that you personally do that you can share with us, strategies, tactics, examples of how you've actually been able to instill hope in your students? Yeah, I think I think I would say the the biggest thing that I that I can that I can tell you is just having a relationship with kids that's positive and that's something that they can um trust and and, and rely on as a stable thing in their life mm-hmm. is 
is more than they're ever going to get anywhere else. Um, so that that building that stability and that that um, consistency, I I think gives hope to children. I yeah, I have a lot of children who um, just kind of come come I don't know to understand that that I'm the I'm the stable person, and so. So they trust me, and and that that gives them that stability that they don't have in their life already. You know, we think about you know the, the normal, if you will. If there is such a thing anymore. The normal track has been you go to primary school, and you go to middle school, and high school, and then off to college. And of course, so many. You know, one of the things that we know that happens when one is void of hope or, you know, just struggling to find hope is how will I ever get to college and the higher cost of education. And so I would imagine you've got some great stories about your students who've gone on to achieve, you know, advanced degrees and, and moved on with their lives. But as I said earlier, um, with the uh, National Rural Education Association talking about the future, not so much about college degrees, but rather about job skills. So I'm just curious, when you are preparing students for their future, um, are you and your fellow teachers looking at ways to introduce all these possibilities beyond just looking at the traditional model of going to college? And what are some of the life skills that you might be teaching them to prepare for the, an alternative, if that's the appropriate way um, to express it to, to a higher education? Yeah, um, we, yeah, that, that, is, that has been kind of a push in our state uh, in Pennsylvania to open up some more pathways um, other than just college. And, and I think that really is important. In our state, um, the natural gas industry is really booming here. So a lot of students I've had have really been successful, um, really just kind of working in that, in that, in that field. Um, but uh, as far as my, my school goes, I work with an incredible group of people. And we're always kind of like brainstorming after conferences and thinking about things. And it was actually after the, the national conference in Colorado, I was on my way home. I was flying um, uh, into Chicago. And this man, who was probably a little bit older than me, was sitting beside me studying a hunter safety book. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, isn't this interesting? Like he's he is really studying. He is he's working at it. And I and I looked at what he was he was kind of studying and and I thought, man, this is really similar to the informational writing that I teach the unit. And so I got back and um I called up one of my colleagues and we sat down and we were like, what am I missing here? Like we have a lot of texts, we have a lot of um resources to teach this, but what if we taught this in a way that was giving the students something that they could take away from the experience? So we're right in the middle. This is kind of a new thing for us, and we're right in the middle of developing it. But we are trying to get students um, certified in something before they leave our program. So, for example, hunter safety, or um, there's a lifeguarding, a junior lifeguarding certificate. And... Um, junior CPR and a lot of different actual programs that and resources that we can use to teach the content that we need to teach, but also give students some sort of thing to take with them. There's a, there's a babysitter 
certification. And how great would it be if every one of our sixth graders interested in babysitting had that to take with them to middle school? So that's kind of just something that we're working through and we're trying to figure out. But I think it's kind of neat to see the the shift in a focus on, you know, really standards driven to standards plus application. I think that's outstanding because I, you know, on your list of things, we take a look at poverty, but then we took a, take a look at achievement gaps. And I recognize that we, the, you know, the traditional achievements with um, math and science and English and so forth. But to your point, what better way to build self-esteem in a young person than having them achieve a certificate of some yeah. sort that they completed? I think that's great. And I will say to you before we take a quick break, I love the idea because the hospitals I work with, and I hope this does give you in, unless you guys are already doing this, which I'd love to hear about it as well. If there are any rural hospital leaders listening out there with teachers, there are so many opportunities to introduce young people to careers in healthcare that are beyond doctor, nurse. Um, I think about healthcare IT, and I know you're interested in STEM education as well. So what you've just shared is tremendous, and that could really help to, I would imagine, pave the way for if a young person says, I did this then that means I can do this too. Yeah, yeah, and kind of developing that portfolio um, even before they get to middle school. So I teach elementary and I teach anywhere between three to six uh, in, in the traditional grade sense. And yeah, I just, we, we really, uh, our team really kind of feels a responsibility to give them something that they can take with them. Yeah, That's awesome. So we're going to take a quick break. So at this point, I would like to, really make sure that I acknowledge our sponsor for today's episode, which is the National Rural Education Association. The National Rural Education uh, Association is the voice of all rural schools and rural communities across the United States, the oldest established national organization of its kind. NREA helps rural educators find and use needed resources to educate today's students. NREA is a strong and respected organization of school administrators, teachers, board members, regional service agency personnel, researchers, business and industry representatives, and others interested in maintaining the vitality of rural school systems across the country. You can learn more about them at www.nrea.net. All right, so now let's get back to this great discussion. We are joined today with uh, uh, an award-winning educator. Uh, Wade is talking with us about the story of rural students in America. And we've touched on poverty. We've touched on the achievement gap. I want to talk about teacher recruitment. Um, Teacher recruitment across the board in many communities, whether rural or urban, but in particular in rural communities, could you just give us a snapshot of what that looks like today and some of the challenges and potentially some of the solutions for recruiting teachers to teach this special group of students? Yeah. So, Teacher recruitment is something that I think we're kind of being forced to deal with across the nation, not um, not just in Pennsylvania or on the East Coast. But I, it, when, when I talk to teachers, uh, it's a, a nationwide problem. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of goes back to the resources that we have in rural communities. Uh, we have less resources, which means that we have less funding uh, for teachers in education. So um, rural schools tend to pay less than urban schools, um, and it, it, that makes it difficult to 
get the best con, uh, the best uh, teacher out there for the job. Um, but it also is is a difficult place to work. I think you have to. I think you would agree with me that you have to really have a heart for um, small communities and rural um, uh, mindsets to to live and work in a rural community. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. Um, and if you look at teachers who uh, are really, really passionate and really into their craft, I think um, professional development can be a real issue for um, those of us who really want to actually take that teaching to the next level. So, yeah, I think those are those are reasons why teaching recruitment and retention are really um, kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's it's not something that's going to obviously fix itself. And I I think that we're going to see increasing challenges because of the, there's not a mass exodus. However, our rural populations are shrinking. And part of what we just started the discussion about was the fact that we have to look at other ways to engage students and develop their job skills when there are no jobs um, in rural communities. And, And of course, we take a look at when a rural hospital closes, it's very likely that businesses in the community statistically speaking, they do close up. And of course, um, less students mean less funding for those schools. And so it's kind of a vicious cycle. Um, If you could share with others who might have an interest in teaching in uh, a rural setting, what are some of, obviously we know the challenges, but what are some of the rewards that you can speak to? Yeah, I I love teaching in a rural community. I I know every student in my building by name, and it's mm. it's because it's small. It's because it's uh, I'm involved in a lot of different areas of the school, and I think that is a really neat thing when you know all of the students by name. You know the families. You know the challenges. You know the rewards, the successes, um, and. And the cool thing about teaching in a rural school is you can celebrate all of those together, all of the successes, and you have somebody that's with you when when things are a little harder too. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like how all of our schools, even even in our our area in our county, our rural schools are very connected. Um, they work together, they work on calendar stuff together, but they also support each other. So. Um, that pooling of resources is really important in communities um, that are rural. Uh, I think also I would say that rural communities, I don't know, are just, I don't know if I could say richer or deeper or more soulful or something like that is what I would say. I, I just think that everything is connected in a rural community. And and my wife is 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 from not a not a big city, but from a more urban area. And so when she moved here, um, she just thought it was so funny that she had to like be careful when she went to the grocery store because she was always going to run into a student Mm -hmm. or somebody or a caseworker or someone. And um, so that connectedness, if we embrace it, I think is really an interesting and meaningful part of teaching in in a rural community. I've heard that so often, the hospitals I work with, we really are strong proponents of partnering hospitals with schools and not in the usual fashion, like write a check for, you know, prom, but it's really getting in there and becoming kind of co-educators. And and to your point, it's tight knit. There's a very, a sense of family. Um, When one family is suffering, 
many families are suffering when one family is celebrating as something joyful, everyone is celebrating with them. So there is that really unique bond that people share. Yeah, and I I love what Whitney Coe says. Um, she's at the Center for Rural Strategies, I think. Um, she said that in rural communities, we show up and we do the work. And I, 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 I really like that part of working in a rural school. Um, there's always someone in our building. There's always someone like showing up and doing the thing that they don't really have to do, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then they're doing it for the community. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it because they're making a ton of money. They're doing it for the kids or the community. Um, and I just, you can see examples of that every, everywhere you go. We build a pavilion in our park, our school. Uh, we have an initiative um, that my principal started to build a pavilion in our park because we needed we needed a place for for the kids to to feel safe um, after school and to do our extracurricular activities and so we just we did it you just you just do it and and I and I think that's an interesting part of being in a rural community so you have mm-hmm. that space to be creative and and do the work. And what I, what I've noticed is that there's less time between start and finish because we don't have, although there is, you know, we shouldn't kid anybody. There's bureaucracy, no matter how large or small your community, but it does seem to me that rural communities are able to, you know, create a plan, put it together and execute it um, in, in a bit more expedited way because we don't have so many roadblocks. And that that actually speaks to the next topic I want to talk to you about, because you talk about the fact that innovation is not the key to success, but rather it is the survival. And when you are in an environment where you have challenges with poverty, when you have achievement gaps and you've got recruitment and retention, you've got more limited resources or more minimal resources, how do you, in what we traditionally think about as innovation, which requires research and development and technology, what does innovation look like in rural education today? Gosh, I, I, I kind of go back to that, that whole idea of having the space to just create and fail if you must, but, but just take a risk. And I think, I think especially in rural education, um, when you have a leader who is willing to give you that space, Mm-hmm. And be innovative, and check out of the box, and um, look out of the box. I think that you ha- you are able to kind of create that innovative mindset, um, and I and I see it all over. I I mean, growing up on a dairy farm, you in a, it like like I said, innovation wasn't really like a fun new thing that was coming down the line. It was just what you did to survive. I mean, you you figured it out and. I think that that mentality in rural America really leads to a lot of really, really great things like um, innovation, obviously, but also entrepreneurship. And I think that that we're we're looking at different ways to solve problems than maybe traditionally we've kind of got caught in. Is there a strategy um, that you know of in your teaching in your in your community with your administrators and other teachers? Is is there a um, an obvious strategy to do what you can to ignite the passion in these students to want to stay? You know, we I've seen countless articles and white papers, and I've listened to so many lectures about 
you know, kind of students leaving their rural communities. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about any strategies that you know of or success um, methods for retaining students to stay in their communities and become contributors just like you did. Yeah, yeah. And so I think I think what you have to kind of back up and look at is creating opportunities to stay. And without all those opportunities, then you don't have a, a space for students to even think about staying. They mm-hmm. have to go in order to survive. So I think, um, yeah, just kind of pooling those community resources uh, very much with the healthcare industry, um, trying to get those certifications um, earlier can mm-hmm. help a student, you know, even have the have the means to to make it a possibility. Um, yeah, I I would say that's the challenge. That's that's kind of what everyone's trying to figure out is how to get kids to come home or stay. And I think that we're going to have different uh, things in the future. I'm particularly. I think broadband could really change the game mm-hmm. on on everything. Um, rural areas tend to tend to have very low services as far as internet goes with broadband, and I think that if we could get just that infrastructure in, um, that that would create so many opportunities for students to to stay and freelance or stay and work from home or those kind of things. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that because we know that, you know, in, in just in my world and rural health, broadband technology and the expansion and the availability, I mean, it's significant because we're talking about telehealth, but it could be teleeducation. There, I think about distance learning for students, for those who are not in a position to leave their community, maybe don't want to, for whatever their reasons, no, nothing good, bad, just different opinions and approaches, if we could make sure that that technology is there. And I'm curious, uh, from your perspective uh, right now, just if you have any data that you can share with us, the contrast between technology and connectivity in the classroom in rural and technology and connectivity in the classroom in a more urban or metropolitan setting, and clearly that has to contribute to the achievement gap. Yeah, it definitely. I I think it does. I don't have any specific data, but it's it's funny that you say it. Today we had a um we had a two hour delay because of ice, and all, all of our phones were out until mm. probably five minutes before the conversation. Wow. <laughs> I was really uh, worried that we weren't <laughs> going to be able to call because there's not um, access to um, cellular service for your phone or anything. So so you really depend on that. Um, but yeah, I I think. Uh, can you can you say your question again? Well, I was just curious about what you, you know, from your experience in traveling and talking with other teachers. You know, what is the fundamental difference just in the way you are approaching teaching for students who don't have the same technological resources as the, their counterparts in a in a metropolitan setting? How does that contribute yeah. to their achievement gap? Okay, I think so. I think that um, it very much contributes to the achievement gap because you're really limited to what you can do at home uh, or at school. Mm-hmm. You're really limited to what you can do at school. Uh, the And then, which just makes the achievement gap wider. When students can't, um, even, even for fun, for entertainment, research something, um, then you, you lose 
that extracurricular piece to the educational process. So a lot of, so we don't really give traditional grades anymore, but one of the highest grades that you can get is a, is a number four, which, which includes outside research on your own. And so many students in, in my area wouldn't even be able to achieve the, a number four, the highest grade that you can get, because they don't have the resources to do that or even, even the infrastructure to do that. In 2019, it just sounds absurd. And I recognize I that it is, is such a fundamental problem that we have right now. And I would imagine, you know, to your point, I think about my daughter and her experience teaching. She went, you know, they had great grants, you know, so there are so many wonderful technology grants out there. And I've spoken in, in previous episodes to those who are capitalizing on those grants for STEM education and all aspects of rural education. But then they go home. And if there is an access at home, exactly to your point. So the next question I want to ask you is about parent engagement, because we do know that um, from as a parent myself, and I talked to so many, that their participation in the education process is so important to their students, their child's success. What are some of the things that you're doing to help keep parents or caregivers or guardians engaged in the education process, because it doesn't look like A, B, C, D, or F anymore. There's, you know, it's very different than from, I won't date myself, from when we went to school. And so I wonder how you work with, with parents who are not familiar with this new way of approaching teaching. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we switched to a more customized approach to education that really took out grade levels and grades, that was a shift for our community because that was a hard thing for them to, especially parents, I think, to to wrap their head around because there used to be this number that I could like control, you know, mm-hmm. and now it's more like the skill that I need to to um, to address. And so I think being shifting to more of a customized approach and or a skills based education. And which is we've seen in our country um, make that shift uh, very, very strongly in the last few years. I think that's that's a really important thing to communicate to parents. And that has helped our parents stay more engaged. So instead of like worrying about getting a 70 in spelling, we're worrying about the um, AR sound or whatever. And that that really that has been an interesting shift in our community. So you're bringing, you're educating the parents along with their students, and hopefully that's a formula for success. That's wonderful. So before we close out, I, I want to just ask you, as a rural educator, someone who is deeply involved with rural students, rural communities, and their families, for those who are listening and have the means and the resources and the passion because we've inspired something in them, what would you ask from them with respect to rural education? I would ask them to continue to invest in rural communities. I think that we are doing really great work and building hope. And um, I would say that I would ask the greater community out there to just kind of keep investing in us um, mm-hmm. and in our communities. Well said. I, I, I agree with that. And Wade, I want to make sure that I connect with you um, after the program because I think I have some potential resources, just some ideas to help you. You can never have enough community support. So 
maybe I can uh, provide you with a few ideas on how we've been able to engage um, rural hospitals with rural schools that really are meant to build self-esteem and do exactly what you said earlier, which is to help them have a sense of true achievement, um, just beyond the, you know, reading math and arithmetic and all that. So thank you so much. We've been joined by Wade Outlet. Remember, he is the National Rural Education Association's 2018 Rural Teacher of the Year. He's doing some really great work out there. We'd like to acknowledge and thank our Rural Matters marketing partners, which includes the Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Rural Educators Alliance, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NCTA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative. These partnering organizations help Rural Matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussion of issues affecting rural communities. So we hope that you'll look them up and thank them as well. Now, if you would like more information on about this podcast and more about rural issues and the impact these issues have on the matters that touch all of us in one form or another, or to suggest a guest or a topic, just email us at ruralmatterspodcast at gmail. We'd appreciate if you would rate this podcast on iTunes, and please do tell your friends and colleagues about this uh, format. Also, please remember to follow us on Twitter at Rural Matters Pod or me, Michelle Rathman, your host at MRV Impact. To stay up to date with me, you can also visit michellerathman.com. I also want to thank our Rural Matters producers, Michael Levin Epstein and Susan Semples. Truly, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm-hmm.